Well, how are you? I don't remember eating that. Hey, uh, it, is, it is exciting that we have like balmy weather today. Would you agree? I mean, we thank God, we thank God for the snow and uh, its beauty and all of that, but we thank God for warmer, warmer weather. Listen, 71% uh, of our country this past couple of weeks were covered in snow, so uh, that's a lot. And so uh, you couldn't go to Galveston and get away from it, and you know, so you might as well, might as well stay here. My name's Merle, my joy to welcome all of you to Pleasant Valley, everybody that's here with us in the worship center, all of you folks in the chapel, and then everybody that is joining us online. What's really exciting right now is uh, we're a part of a journey with 300 churches around the world. About 140 of those are here in Kansas City, and we are united doing one thing. We are spending about seven weeks getting prepared for Easter and all of us are reading the Gospels together, and all of these churches around the world are preaching through the Gospel of Mark together, and we're all preaching it in different ways and touching on different themes. And so this is a great opportunity. If you've not done so, you've been hearing me talk about it, but maybe you're new with us. If you'll get on your mobile device and download an app called the Bible.is app, you'll be able to follow along with us. Just go to uh, the reading plan called One 2020, and it's uh, going to lead you in the reading of the Gospels. And if you're behind, don't worry about it. You can catch up. And then join one of our watch groups. And the watch groups are basically community groups, or maybe you can establish one yourself. Just invite some folks to join you, and then watch the Gospel of Mark, and then have conversations about what you read there. The belief is this. The Scripture is sufficient. The Holy Spirit is powerful. When we combine those two with us, God does some amazing, transforming work. And so I encourage you to do that. We're praying for 3,000 people who are participating in this around the world to come to faith in Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great thing? That would be an absolutely awesome thing. And we're hoping many of them come to faith in Jesus through, through our ministry. So... If you're with us for the very first time, this is what we've been doing. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and our sermon series is called Simply Jesus. And it appears that what Mark is doing in his Gospel account is he is emphasizing two things that he wants to make sure that we don't overlook. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what is it like to be a follower of Jesus? And so, in order to get us going, let me ask a question. If you were to summarize what you think to be the theme of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teaching, what would it be? So, wherever you're listening right now, whether you're in the chapel, whether you're here in the worship center, or whether you are at home with the family, go ahead and to the folks that are right next to you, Tell them what you think the theme of Jesus' teaching life and ministry was. I'm going to give you like 10 seconds. Go right now. You did a fantastic job of whispering to each other. I appreciate that. If you're online, why don't you type in what you think the theme is? So, 
Some folks would say they believe that the theme of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching is love. Others would say, no, it is about the forgiveness of sin. And still others would say, no, it really is about the whole idea of heaven. Now, Jesus emphasized all three of those. Those were very important, as was prayer, as was giving, uh, as was uh, a number of things. But the one thing that Jesus emphasized that you could say would be the theme of his teaching, the passion and the purpose of his life, is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know for some of us, uh, the whole idea of Jesus using that particular analogy maybe is lost on us because we don't live in a kingdom. We live in uh, a republic where Power is held by the people, and we elect representatives in order to exercise power. But in a kingdom, the king was the ultimate authority, and the king had a kingdom. That was the boundary of his authority, and everyone who lived within the kingdom, he was committed to protect and committed to look after. And what the king said went. And when the king asked you to do anything, if you were a citizen of his kingdom, you were to do it or you would face the consequences for not doing it. And so Jesus comes along and Jesus reaches and he grabs this analogy of the person and the the understanding of ultimate authority, and he says, I'm going to use that to communicate what it is like when God rules in people's lives. And I'm going to give you an idea of what it is like for the kingdom to be present in this world. So let me see if I can give you a bit of a dense description or definition of the kingdom, and we'll come back to it a couple of times. So the kingdom of God is this. The effectual activity, the effectual, the word effectual simply means that what is intended to happen, happens. It is, it has the appropriate effect. The effectual activity and rule of God initiated by Jesus' earthly ministry and to be consummated when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And if you think about this last phrase, if you're familiar with your Bible, that comes from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. That's the ultimate consummation. It's where what God wants done is being done. I love what Russell Moore did when Russell Moore was describing the kingdom of God. He says this, the kingdom of God is the good news that the right rule of God and the right rule of men, a rule our ancestors, Adam and Eve, lost whenever they sinned. They had been given basically the responsibility of ruling the earth and, and overseeing it, but they lost that right rule when they sinned. So the kingdom of God is the good news that the right rule of God and the right rule of man have come together in the right rule of one right God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. In his sin-resisting life, 
his wisdom-saturated teaching, his demon-exercising power, his substitutionary conquering death, and his justifying victorious resurrection, Christ is king. That deserves an applause. When you think about that, when you think about that, it's the right rule of God that has come to us in the right man. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he is our king. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, and we're going to think about who is this Jesus. Jesus is simply the king. Mark uh, 1, 14 through 20, it says, After John, this is John the baptizer, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon, uh, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, if you remember what I said the last week, immediately is a big deal in Mark's gospel used 41 times. There's a sense of urgency about what does it mean to understand who Jesus is and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I want you to note three truths, and each one builds upon each other when we're thinking about Jesus as being king. Truth number one is this. God acts in time at the right time. God acts in time at the right time. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God has come near. And we believe that Jesus is God, and so Jesus has always existed, but the mystery of the coming of Jesus is that this God who is not bound by time restricted himself to time for 33 years to be among us, and that was just the right time. That phrase, the time is fulfilled, historically speaking, We'd say, yeah, everything about that time was a perfect time. Roman peace extended throughout the civilized earth at that time. That made travel and commerce incredibly easy. It was possible where it once was impossible. Added on top of that, these great roads that the Roman Empire had established allowed not only there to be great commerce, but it allowed the diverse folks to begin to speak one common language called Greek or Koine Greek, the common Greek. And if you add on top of that, the fact that even people who did not believe in God, pagans, were recognizing that in those days, the world was in such a moral pit that 
they were crying out against all of the immorality and all of the chaos and all of the disruption that was going on, and they were crying out against it. There was a spiritual hunger that was present in the world like never before. So you could say at the perfect time in history, the coming of Jesus arrived on the scene and allowed for the expansion of the gospel. But it's also been suggested that this phrase, the time is fulfilled, is not just historically a perfect time, but it may have been a way of saying that the time was full because God himself was filling it with meaning. The time is fulfilled. God is filling the time with meaning. Any of us who have become followers of Jesus Christ can say from our own experience, before we came to faith in Jesus, we were just putting in time. Before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were just going through the motions. We were punching the time clock. We were just doing one day after another. We were simply existing, but when we met Jesus Christ, God filled up our lives so that we were no longer existing. We were really living. He fills our lives with significance and purpose and meaning and direction. We are no longer aimless. We're no longer just doing life. We are experiencing life. The time is fulfilled. God is filling up time. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. In Jesus' teaching, in Jesus' miracles, in Jesus' acts of compassion, in Jesus' actions, God's rule invaded the present world like never before. God isn't distant, detached, and disinterested. God is present and God is involved. God is near and God is here is what Jesus is saying. Now, this is what I think goes through some people's minds. You can say that all day, Merle. I don't feel it. I don't feel like God is near. I don't feel like the kingdom of God is here. And I get that. Life can be hard. You can get punched by all kinds of different things in life that are outside of your control. Maybe this past year has pummeled you like no year has ever pummeled you. And you're going, I don't feel it. Let me just say this. Just because you don't feel something doesn't make it untrue. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. The time is fulfilled. The time is full with God himself. Now, I know if you've read, the, if you've been reading the Gospels, you're obviously going to have some conflict because Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. It's come near. And you read the Gospels, and Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is yet to come. And you're wondering, okay, do I have to believe one or the other? Is the kingdom of God here or is the kingdom of God to come? And so maybe the best way to think about it is they're both true. The kingdom of God is already here. It came in the person of Jesus Christ, but it has not come in its fullness yet. 
The kingdom of God is a present reality, but the kingdom of God is also a future hope. Jesus inaugurated it. Jesus initiated it. It is not yet here, but the day is coming when Jesus Christ will be king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. Hasn't happened yet, but the time is coming that it will. Think about it like this. When a woman is pregnant, the baby is here, but not yet. The baby is very much present and alive in the womb, but not yet alive outside of the womb for everyone to see and experience. It's similar with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is here. The time is pregnant with Jesus, but the day is coming when the kingdom is going to be birthed like like never before. Let me take you back to what I said at the beginning. The kingdom of God is the effectual activity and rule of God initiated in Jesus' earthly ministry and to be consummated when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. What have we said? God acts in time at the right time. The second truth building on the first one is this. God acts in time at the right time with good news. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark said Jesus went throughout Galilee proclaiming the good news. Now, what is the good news? Now, some of you are going, Merle, I've been around church all of my life. This is a pretty elementary question. Fine, I give you that, but what is the good news? The good news isn't your typical daily news report. It isn't like reporting the weather and reporting a, an accident or anything like that. It isn't your garden variety daily news. The good news that Jesus came to embody, the good news that Jesus is the source of, the good news that Jesus is the content of, the good news that Jesus announced is life-shaping and history-making news that changes everything. N.T. Wright's a biblical scholar, and he, he wrote a book called Simply Good News, and he says, imagine if you will, you're sitting with some friends in a restaurant and you're enjoying a nice meal together and this, the door just slams open and in comes this guy. He's got kind of a wild look on his faith, face and he just shouts out, this is amazing. This is such good news. This is so unbelievable. It's the greatest news that you could ever imagine. Well, what's the good news? What, what in the world is he talking about? What could be such good news that he would bust into a restaurant filled with people he did not know and start telling strangers about his good news? And N.T. Wright says, could be three possible scenarios. He says, one scenario, maybe the doctors just told the man that they managed to cure his daughter of the disease that was killing her. And that would be great news indeed at least for him and his family and the immediate friends. But does it, does it explain why he would just go into a restaurant filled with 
people he does not know and announce the good news? Scenario number two, maybe he just heard that the local football team has won a great victory over their old rivals. And why would he leave the celebration of his team just winning to go into a restaurant with a bunch of non-fans? Or maybe it's scenario number three. Maybe in the region there was great unemployment and they discovered a huge reserve of coal and oil and gas. And suddenly there is going to be jobs for everyone and unemployment is going to, is going to dissipate. There are places in the world where there, if that were to happen, that would be ecstatic news. It would be a dramatic announcement. And then what Wright does, he goes, every one of the scenarios that I just told you about is like the good news. It's like the good news of Jesus Christ. It's like the gospel. So, in each scenario, something new that has happened didn't just happen out of the blue. It has a context to it. For the man, the context, his daughter is in the hospital, or he, had a, he was at a football game, or he was living in a town of unemployment. What's the context of the coming of the good news of Jesus Christ? Remember what I said? At just the right time, everything about the timing was just right for God to send forth his son. There was a context there. Second of all, it's news about something that has happened and by which everything is now going to be different. Jesus came to say that something has happened in history that God initiated, that we didn't initiate, but we can benefit from. And the benefit is this. We were separated from God, but now we can be connected with God, not on the basis of our goodness, but based upon the grace of God. And then Wright says, in each scenario, the news introduces an intermediate, intermediate period of time that will be filled, that is filled with hope as we anticipate the good news becoming the consummated reality. For instance, if the man's daughter was in the hospital, they're filled with hope that she's going to get better and she's going to get out of the hospital. This is what I would want you to hear. If we says God acts in time, at the right time, with good news, I want you to see that Jesus brings good news where it is needed. It says that Jesus went to Galilee. Now, let's just do something for a minute. I want you to do some reflection. When you think about Jesus and the time in which he lived and where it was that he did his ministry, what image comes to your mind? Allow your mind to just be populated for a minute. What is it that you think about? What do you see with your mind? If I were guessing, I would say this. Many folks answer that question by saying, this is what I imagine. I imagine a very calm, peaceful scene. Jesus walking in a wilderness, and there are sheep that are all around him, and him picking up a lamb, and him, him stroking the lamb, or him having children around him, and him kneeling down to listen to the children and to bless the children. And what I see is a peaceful, easy feeling when I think about Jesus. But that wasn't the 
story in Galilee. Galilee back in those days was a very robust city of commerce. It was like at an intersection where a lot of business took place. Galilee was a place where races came together and races mixed. So there would have been some racial tension there. Galilee was a place where there was threat and where there was conflict. And where does Jesus show up initiating this good news that God is here, that the time is filled with the presence of God's Rule. It's not some retreat setting somewhere. He's meeting people. He's meeting us in the midst of life. Jesus comes to everyone who needs the good news right where we are. It's him coming to us in our busyness at work. It's Jesus coming to us where there is racial tension. It's Jesus coming to us in the place where there is conflict. Whether you're having conflict at school, whether you're having conflict at work, or whether you're having conflict in your family, Jesus brings and Jesus is the good news that God is here in the middle of whatever you are in the middle of. He is not distant. He is right here, and he is right now, and he's saying, if you're willing to embrace the rule of God and allow God's effectual activity for what God wants done to be done in your life, your life is going to be marked with change that is good for the better. Third truth caps it all off. God acts in time, at the right time, with good news, calling for a response. The good news isn't just something go, hey, that's really good news. I'm glad I heard that. I'm going to go back to playing golf. I'm going to go back to making a salami sandwich. I'm going to go back to watching TV. No, the good news is Good news that calls for a response, and there are three responses that we're going to see. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent. And we talked a little bit about repent last week. To repent means to change your mind, change your thinking, and return to God. When you change your mind and change your thinking, it'll change your behavior. It means to change and return to God. It means I'm going this way, I'm doing a UE, and I'm moving in the direction of God. It means I acknowledge that God is controlled and I stopped rejecting his rule. It means I stop walking away from God and I turn around and I allow myself to be caught by his amazing accepting grace. Jesus says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. What does it mean to believe? Really, what does it mean? Does it mean to accept that something is true? Yes. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I accept that to be true, but it is more than that. 
It's more than just accepting up here that propositional statement. Christianity isn't all about being in your head. It isn't all about that. It means that I not only accept something to be true, I volitionally, I willfully embrace this to the point that it actually changes my life. I voluntarily trust my life into the very hands of of Christ. I don't just think it, and I don't just keep it right up here. I go, this is whole life. This is everything about me. I voluntarily trust to Christ. Biblically speaking, you got to listen to this. Biblically speaking, you can't have repentance and belief as being two different things. You haven't truly believed in Jesus if you haven't repented. You haven't fully repented until you actually believe. It's like two sides of the same door. If you want access to God, you've got to go through the door of repentance and belief. You don't get to separate them from each other. Two sides of the same door. The reason some people have trouble believing is they have never repented. There's never been a change of thinking, and there's never been a turning to God. If your journey with God is non-existent, or your journey with God is flat, the first thing to ask yourself is this, have I turned to God from a self-ruled, self-absorbed life? That's the first question to ask. I read somewhere that only those who have turned their lives toward God will be able to see and believe what is not self-evident to others. These things go together. When you repent and believe, there's something that naturally comes after that. Do you know what that is? You follow. It's fascinating to me that Jesus says the The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. And then in Mark's gospel, it's followed up by him going alongside the Sea of Galilee and inviting some people to follow him. He goes to Simon and Andrew, James and John, whose vocation, whose profession, which probably was their profession in their family for generations, And he says, I want you to leave your security. I want you to step away from the one thing that has given you identity, your family, and I want you to follow me. This would have been a radical thing because in the first century Jewish tradition, what typically happened is that a pupil would listen to various rabbis and identify, I'm going to follow this one or I'm going to follow that one. Jesus does something different. He walks up and he says, I want you to come follow me. He takes the initiative and says, I'm calling to you. If you want to follow me, listen to my voice. The only way that you can come to God is because God has been calling out to you all of your life. And the only way to experience God is you repent and you believe and then you begin to follow. Jesus is still making the call to follow him. It's not limited to four fish-smelling dudes back in the day. 
He is still issuing the call today for us to come follow him. And when he says, follow me, this is what it involves. It involves a willingness to give up the things that give your life security in believing that Jesus is your ultimate security. So for the first generation Jews, their identity was family. For in our culture, the thing that gives us security, the thing that gives us our identity is what? Our career. And Jesus is saying, do I have priority over family? And do I have priority over career? Will you look outside of me for your sense of identity and for your sense of security? And so he makes this very radical radical call, and the call comes in the midst of life. Did you notice that? Jesus went to where they were, and they were doing what they were doing, and Jesus is saying, in the midst of what you're doing, at your job, at your school, at your family, I'm inviting you to follow me. Some of you think that the only place that you can really hear the voice of God is like, on a spiritual retreat somewhere. And I believe in spiritual retreats. I've taken many of them. But God comes to us powerfully in the midst of whatever it is that we're doing in everyday life. We just have to have eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus has been coming to us all along. Don't be surprised at the places when you hear the voice of God inviting you to live differently and to follow him. To follow Jesus is to acknowledge that Jesus is king and to do what he says. If I've not told you this lately, let me tell you today. Jesus is a disruptor. Jesus is not interested in us living lives that are so comfortable and convenient that we just snooze our way into a life absent of him. He comes to disrupt us because he goes, listen, if you live within my kingdom, if you live within the boundaries of my effectual will and rule, life is going to be at its best for you outside of the boundaries of my kingdom. There is no life that really does exist. To follow Jesus is to say yes to whatever it is that he invites us to do, knowing that it is a gift of abundant life. And there's one other thing. To follow Jesus is to do what Jesus did. And in this particular text, it says that these guys left their fishing for fish to fish for people. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus left all of his privileges in heaven to come to us to gather us in the net of the Father's love, to rescue us and pull us into the boat of God's abundant life. 
people who have found that Jesus is the good news, people who have come home at last, people who have said yes to Jesus, found the place that they were looking for all of their lives, and they didn't realize it until they said yes to Jesus. I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for me, and the way Jesus came looking for me is he had some people that loved to fish for people. I can go back and tell you that I had teachers that I was not even aware of at the time who were praying that I would come to faith in Christ. These were people at Wall High School. And I eventually went to work for the husband of one of those teachers. And then I had a brother and a brother-in-law, and I had a youth group, and I had a boss, and uh, his wife and a coworker and his wife that were all fishing for me. I am so thankful to God that they followed what Jesus was doing in the life of these first disciples. To follow Jesus is to fish for other people. So let me draw this to a close. Is Jesus your king? What is the evidence that you and I are living within the boundary of his sovereign rule and his effectual activity? Can we say that what is being done in heaven is being done in my life? Because that's what Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may what's happening right now in heaven be happening right now in my life. Can that be said of us? Have we repented? Are we believing? And are we actively following? I'm going to conclude by reading some words that came real clear to me about this whole idea of following. And so this is like you peeking into a journal. Jesus is saying, follow me because I'm king. Follow me because I've been looking for you. Follow me because I left heaven to find you, to forgive you, to deliver you, and to give you life. Follow me because when you didn't believe right or act right, I sacrificed my life for you. Follow me because no one has or no one ever will love you like I love you. I'm the one you've been looking for even when you didn't know it. Turn to me. Believe in me. Follow me. And you will live. Let's pray. God, we sit in your presence for just a moment here in silence. We believe that you're speaking. Some of us can even sense within our physical bodies, there's a, there's a, a tug, there's a sense of, of churning, there's this sense of restlessness where the Spirit is working in us and taking the words of Scripture and bringing about
confirmation or conviction that you want us to repent and believe and to follow. And I pray that we will. For the person who knows what they've been looking for all of their life that they have not been able to find in sex, in success, in hobbies, in career, in relationships, and any other thing that they have looked at. I pray that today the Spirit would open their eyes to see that what they've been looking for all of their life is the one who is looking for them and looking right at them at this moment saying, I love you, and I want you in my kingdom so that you can experience life. And I pray today there will be individuals who with an act of simple faith will turn from walking away from you and turn towards you in faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in you. I commit my life to you, and I'm going to follow you. And God, I pray for followers of Jesus who have found themselves waning a bit because they have taken their eyes off of the king and they have turned their eyes onto other things that you will within every one of our hearts fan to flame the passion to follow Jesus fully in this day and in this time. And whether that means... Um, being engaged in serving or engaged in sharing Christ with others or being compassionate or generous, whatever it is, God, would you help us to follow in the power of Christ? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody everywhere said with me, amen.